Last year I did a series in summer on uh, the life of Moses, and I, you know, I just, I had never done a, a big series here in the church, a whole series just on uh, one character in the Bible, and I just enjoyed it so much. There's just something about these stories, there's so many touch points with our lives in these stories, and I think they're just powerful, and so all year I've just kind of been looking forward to this summer, I, I was going to do another one, and so I am going to now spend the next few weeks, a big chunk of this summer, and we're going to work our way through the life of Joseph. And, uh, and again, these stories are just so, they're so rich. There's just so much there that we can learn about God and how God works in our lives and how God works through suffering. And it's wonderful. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to do the life of Joseph starting today. And, uh, and, and of course, the story of Joseph, like, like all of our stories, really the story of Joseph starts before Joseph, okay? And so we're going to start this story actually more than 100 years before Joseph's birth. Um, because you can't understand. There's a whole bunch of things that happen in Joseph's life, and that we're going to go through in this series. There's a whole bunch of things that happened in his life that had to happen. They were written in stone. It wasn't because Joseph planned them. It wasn't because Joseph made a mistake or did something good or whatever it was. They had to happen. They were written in stone because Joseph's life, Joseph was born into a bigger storyline that was going on. And by the way, this is true for all of us. We're all born, we can't see it often in our day-to-day lives, but we're all born into a bigger storyline and there's things that are written in stone by a sovereign God for us beforehand and so you can't understand the life of Joseph unless you understand the context of what Joseph is born into and and so why some things happen to him that have to happen. So we have to start, like I said, uh, more than 100 years before Joseph's birth, we have to start with Joseph's great-grandpa, Abraham, okay? And so, famous story, yeah, if we go back to Genesis 12, famous story, uh, God is looking to put his mega plan for the Messiah. He's, he's looking to put his mega plan, I call it a mega plan, because it's like the plan, the plan to redeem humankind, to have the Son of God, to have Yahweh be born into human flesh as Jesus. God is looking to put that plan into action. And so he's looking all over the world, he's looking all over the world to find one person, he's to find a man And from that man is going to come the nation into which Jesus is going to be born. Okay? It's a mega plan. It's huge. Okay? It's God's plan for the world. And so he looks around the world and he picks Abraham. And of course, he doesn't pick Abraham because Abraham is perfect. He's far from it. No human being is perfect. No human being is righteous before God in their own behavior. And Abraham is certainly a very uh, normal person in the sense that he has many uh, sins and mistakes. He makes mistakes in his lives and character problems. We see them when you read the, the story of Abraham. And one of these summers, I'll have to do that one. But you see it in the, in the story of Abraham. He shows cowardice at times. He lies. He loses faith. Uh, I mean, he sleeps with, his, with the servant because his wife tells him to. I mean, that's just dumb. He makes all kinds of mistakes. God doesn't pick him because he's perfect. And that's, I think, an encouragement for all of us here right now. He doesn't pick him because he's perfect. He picks him because he has a willing heart because that's what God's looking for. God's not looking for perfection in your life. He's not looking for you to be 100% without mistakes. It'll never happen in this earth. But he's looking for a willing heart and he can see that Abraham is at least willing. He's going to mess up. He's going to disobey. He's going to drop the ball, but he's willing to obey. And so God chooses Abraham and he says it's through your descendants, he says this in Genesis 12, through your descendants, through your offspring, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. So right from the very beginning, this is a messianic prophecy. 
Some people think that when God blessed Abraham, he was just blessing the Jewish people, but right from the very beginning, the promise was that through the Jewish people, the Jewish people would be the instrument of blessing, but the blessing was always for all of us. It was for the whole world. Through your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So it's a global plan for God to save the world, all right? So that's famous story, Genesis 12. Now we move ahead just a few years, and we get to Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, uh, God comes back to Abraham, and he's going to give him some more details about this promise. So Abraham already has this promise of, you know, of through you, uh, through your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Now God comes and updates it, gives him some even more information. And in particular, in Genesis 15, God gives Abraham a bunch of information of what's going to happen to Abraham's descendants, what has to happen to Abraham's descendants before the promise can come to be, before the Messiah can come, before the nations of the world can be blessed, okay? And so we're going to read this now because this is super important. If you don't understand this part from Genesis 15, you're missing the whole context for Joseph's story. Because everything that happens to Joseph is directly tied to what we're going to see God tell Abraham here in Genesis 15. So God's going to come to Abraham and he's going to give him some now some important information. This has to happen to your descendants before the, the promise can, can come to being. Okay, so we start in Genesis 15, starting in verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Okay, so for those of you who are new to the faith or, or this story, he was Abram before his name was changed to Abraham. So this is Abraham here. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. So you're going to die. You, you're not going into bondage. You're going to die in peace. But you shall be buried in a good old age. And they, your descendants, who are going to go into bondage for 400 years and into a foreign country, they shall come back here to this land, the promised land, in a fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Okay, so this is, really, this is, a, this is the context for the Joseph story. Okay, Abraham hasn't even had any kids yet. In fact, he's a long way from having kids yet. He's a couple decades from having any kids. And he's already too old to be having kids, so it'll already be a miracle now, but he's, he's waiting. He hasn't had any kids, but even before he has any kids, decades before he has any kids, God already comes to him and tells him, your descendants are going to have to go, and he gives him the, the Exodus story. The whole thing, the famous story about, you know, the Israelites have to go to Egypt and they have to be there for 400 years and part of that time there, they're going to be under tremendous bondage and slavery and pain and then after that, I'm going to deliver them with spectacular plagues and miracles and I'm going to deliver them back to this land. And this is all before Abraham even has a kid. God is already predicting the whole exodus and the parting of the Red Sea and all that sort of stuff has to happen that the Israelites will have to become slaves. Now, the important thing you have to, you have to realize here is the Israelites, Abraham's descendants going into Egypt to go into slavery and bondage and all sorts of an oppression, it's, it, it's not happening because Abraham made a mistake. It's not going to happen, like, because there's judgments like that, right? We read in the Bible, you know, people mess up and then they're judged. The Israelites mess up. In fact, the Israelites themselves, many times in the Bible, they mess up, God judges them. They get attacked by foreign nations, plagues happen, famines happen, all that sort of stuff. And there's lots of times in the Bible where we see God judging the Israelites for things they've done bad. This is not one of those cases. 
This is God saying that Abraham's descendants, the Jews, must go to a foreign land and be put in horrible bondage. They must suffer for 400 years in exile and affliction. They're going to suffer all this sort of stuff, but not because of anything they've done. They don't even exist yet. So them going into Egypt and going into affliction and going into bondage and suffering, this is not one of those things where the Israelite leaders will ever be able to look back and say, well, if we only hadn't worshipped other gods, we wouldn't have ended up in slavery here like we are today. This is not one of those cases. They are going to Egypt to affliction and suffering because God said so, not because they deserve it, not because they've done something wrong, not because they've sinned. They were put there by God. Right from the beginning, God's people were going to enter into the promised land through affliction and suffering. And this is really important because there's a process to how God works. There's a process to how God works. I mean, he's God. He could have done it a different way. He could have said to Abraham, hey, you're going to have a bunch of kids, and then their kids are going to all be happy and healthy all the time. They're going to grow up in this land, and it's the promised land. And isn't it wonderful Israel's happy and good and peaceful? He could have done it that way, but he doesn't do that way. He brings Abraham to the promised land. Abraham's in the promised land. And before Abraham even has any kids, he says, I'm sending all your kids out for 400 years. They're going to suffer really terrible, and I'm going to bring them back. He bursts them. There's a process to how God works. And just like before a baby can be born, there first has to be a pregnancy and then a painful delivery. Sorry to talk to you uh, pregnant ladies here about that today. But there, first, before you can have the baby, um, there first has to be a pregnancy. Then there has to be a painful delivery. In the same way, in order for the people of God to be brought into the promised land, they first have to go through a lengthy exile and be birthed in a, in a painful delivery. Now, I'm going to just rabbit trail here for just a second before we get back to Joseph. This has huge relevance for us here today because in many ways, it has huge relevance for us today because in many ways and uh, cases, the Israelites in the Old Testament can function in some ways as a, as a type, as an example, as a parallel for the church today. Not always, but sometimes they can function that way. And, and the same thing that the Israelites, before they get into the promised land, they had to be sent into exile to a foreign kingdom. They had to suffer affliction. Then they needed supernatural deliverance to come into the promised land. Is the same thing today for the church. The church must, before it can enter into our promised land, we must first go through exile in a foreign country. We must suffer much in affliction before we can be delivered with supernatural deliverance. And that's why Paul and Barnabas, when they were teaching in the book of Acts, I'm going to take you now to Acts chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas in the book, in the, in, in, in the book of Acts, they're going all over the place starting, you know, the new, the, the church. This is a new thing. Jesus has died. He's gone back to heaven. And now the body of Christ. There's this thing called the church. And it's starting up. And Paul and Barnabas are going everywhere. And they're preaching. Everywhere they go, they're starting these new churches, this new movement, this Jesus movement. And everywhere they go, they're preaching something really important that ties into this. Ties in exactly to what I'm talking about here, and I just want to show you this. Acts 14, 21 to 22. When they, Paul and Barnabas, had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So, in, in, this, in this passage here, Luke is not giving us word for word the messages that Paul preached. And this often happens in the Bible when you read in the New Testament and it'll talk about what they were preaching. The writers aren't giving us word for word what their message was because Paul and Barnabas will have preached for a lot longer than two lines, okay? But what they were doing in the New Testament, and same with Jesus and his teachings and parables, they're not giving us word for word everything they said because Jesus would often speak for hours to the crowds. 
But what they're doing is they're condensing it. What was the main point, the Holy Spirit-inspired main point of that message or the main idea? And what we find here in Acts 14 is one of the primary main components of all the messages, of all the main teaching that Paul and Barnabas were doing everywhere as they were, as they were starting the church and the church is exploding. Part of the main core of their teaching. Think about that. The main core, what Luke, under the power of the Holy Spirit, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would sum up their message. He would say one of the primary components was this, that they were teaching everybody that through many tribulations, not some, but through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Not some, but many. Okay? Now, this is really important. Uh, part of the reason we miss the force of this passage is because we Christians today have totally over-spiritualized, over vastly over-spiritualized the phrase, the kingdom of God. Many Christians say, in fact, many of you, I bet if I asked you guys, what is the kingdom of God? Think about it right now. What would you answer if I asked you, what is the kingdom of God that Paul is talking about here? What's the kingdom of God? You know, many Christians today think, they read this, they think kingdom of God, they think of the kingdom of God as some sort of nebulous spiritual entity that's inside their hearts. Now, there is an element of truth there. There's an element of Jesus, of course, being in our hearts. And so, you know, there's kind of a sense of, yeah, maybe is part of the kingdom of God in our hearts. But we've made, we've over-spiritualized this term that we think of the kingdom of God as it's sort of like a feeling in my heart. That's the kingdom of God. And so we read this passage and we think Paul's saying, through many tribulations, you're going to go through much suffering and stuff so that you can enter into something, there's this thing in your heart, you go through all the suffering and then you'll have this thing in your heart. No. The kingdom of God, when the New Testament writers write about the kingdom of God, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God in the Gospels, he's not talking about some nebulous entity that you can't define that's sort of maybe a feeling in your heart. When Paul and Barnabas are preaching about the kingdom of God here, they're talking about the kingdom of God. It's a real thing that someday Jesus is going to come to earth He's going to set up a real city and a real throne, real laws, real events, real people serving, real nations, real everything. It's a real kingdom. It's a real place where Jesus is in charge and truth and justice and peace are established and wickedness and evil are no more. That's the kingdom of God, a real place. It's actually coming to earth. Jesus will be in charge. And Paul and Barnabas are teaching, before we can get there, we have to go through a period. Just like the Israelites, before they could get to the promised land, they first had to go in exile 400 years into an oppressive country, pagan, godless country of Egypt. They had to suffer there more and more and more and more and more until it gets to a climax of intense suffering. And then God, in supernatural plagues and judgments, delivers them out of that and into the promised land. And in the same way, the Christian church the Israelites were 400 years in a foreign kingdom. We are a decade and a half away from being 2,000 years exiled in a foreign kingdom. In suffering and affliction, we're not in our home base here. Over and over again in the New Testament, it's, it's said that we believers are supposed to be like foreigners and strangers because we're not in the kingdom of God yet. It's breaking in in our hearts in a way, but the real kingdom isn't here until Jesus is here. We're in exile, just like the Israelites were in exile. And things are going to get worse and worse and worse. Here's the good news for you this morning. They're going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until the book of Revelation is the story of the exodus, except in the future, all the supernatural plagues God is going to visit on the kingdoms of this earth to deliver us into our promised land, which is the kingdom of God. And so we have many tribulations. We enter into the kingdom of God, just like the Israelites had to go into horrendous bondage and, and think of the things that they suffered. And there was families then too, and they had little kids then too. 
And they suffered horribly as families. They suffered horribly as couples. And they suffered with their kids. And their kids suffered. And they went through all that. And they had to go through that before they could be delivered. And in the same way, the church must go through exile and bondage before we can be delivered in the book of Revelation by supernatural plagues and God's deliverance. And then we enter into the kingdom of God. So important. But as I said before, in the meantime, we have afflictions, just like Israel had afflictions. And we have oppression, just like Israel had oppression. Now, sometimes we believers complain about this reality, don't we? I mean, the Israelites certainly complained about it, right? And, and of course they did. They were enslaved. They were being treated abominably by the Egyptians. And so they cried out, where is God? And in the same way, many believers today, and you're not bad if you do this, it's not bad to cry out to God sometimes and to be hurt because of the suffering that's in your life, but sometimes we cry out. And one of the questions that we sometimes ask is, how can a loving father do this to me? You ever ask that? And again, you're not bad if you've asked that question. How can a loving father do this to his kids? Right? And I, and I hear this question. I think all of us have probably asked God this question from time to time. Because Jesus taught us in the New Testament, he said, he said well, we're supposed to call him our heavenly father. Jesus called the father, he called him Abba, he called him Daddy. And so we're used to calling God Father, but sometimes we go, well, if he's Father, why does he put us through suffering? Because I wouldn't do that to my kids. You ever think about that? We have this accusation in our hearts. I would never put my kids through that. Why would God say to Abraham, you know, his kids haven't done anything bad, and your kids are going to go into bondage. They haven't done anything bad, but you're going to put them there in bondage and suffering. God, I would never do that to my kids. How can a loving father, how can you be a loving father if you do that? And there's almost like an accusation in our hearts. Or people say, you know, if I was God, I would never let my kid, I mean, think of it. If you have the power, would you let your kid get cancer? I hear people ask this question sometimes. And of course, the answer always is no as a parent. I mean, we wouldn't, right? If we had the power to keep our kids from getting cancer, we would. And then we think, well, why does God let us go through cancer then? How can a loving father do that? How can a loving father let me go through divorce or let my sister or daughter or son or someone I love go through a divorce? Or how can a loving father let, have let me as a kid go through sexual abuse or some of the things, the awful things that we suffer here in this world? And we think, because we wouldn't do that to our kids. We wouldn't let our kids suffer like that. How can he call himself a loving father if he lets us go through things like that? Well, there's something I think that's very important that we need to realize here, and, that, and, and, I, and, I, and, and of course, he is a loving father, and I'll get to that in just a second, but there's something really important that, that we always need to keep in mind because that is an accusation that runs through our hearts, and it's not always bad. Sometimes we, we cry out and we're in pain, right? And God's not upset about that, but sometimes it's an accusation that sits there. And so the thing that you need to realize here today is, and, and I want you to remember this line, is that God is more than just your father. He is your loving father. Yes, there's no question. Jesus taught us to call him father. There's many parallels between a good dad and, and, go, and how God is towards us and he loves us and in all of our suffering, he is a good father to us. But he is more than just your father. He is also judge, redeemer, God of the universe, sovereign king over everything. He is more than just your father. And he has more, uh, he has more concerns than just your short-term comfort he has to be a father to billions of people. He cares about the eternal destiny of billions of people, not just you, and all of their families and their nations. And so he does not treat us the same way that we as temporal dads treat our kids. 
He will not just make life good for you so that someone else can go to hell or that someone else can be hurt. He's got to look after everyone, right? We look after our own kids and we think, I would only do good here and here and here and we don't care if in the doing good over here we might hurt someone over here. God can't work like that. And furthermore, he doesn't just have your temporary comfort in mind. He has your eternal destiny in mind. And he cares far more about your, what, your good, your, your quality of life and your reward and what's going to happen to you forever and ever and ever without end than he does about how you feel or your lack of pain or how much pain you suffer in this short term. He does care about that pain, but he cares more about what's happening to you in eternity. So he's more than just your dad. He is your dad. But he doesn't always behave to us like us temporary dads do in this short lifetime. And thank goodness, by the way, I've seen many parents ruin their kids by giving their kids everything they want. I've seen parents absolutely cripple their kids by every time they need something, they just give it to them and they protect them all the time and they stand up for them and they never let them go through suffering and the kid's later 30 years old and he can't stand on his own two feet and it's pathetic. And thank God, you know, thank God, God isn't like that. So yes, he's a loving father, and in the suffering he sends our way, he will be a father to us in that suffering, but he will not shield us from suffering the same way we would like to do for our kids. He has much better good. He has a more eternal good. He has more people in mind than just that. And he will allow us to go through suffering for his good purposes. So in the meantime, we can trust that God always has good reasons. In the meantime, we can trust that God always has good reasons. When there's suffering in my life, I can't, I mean, look at the, look at the, the Israelites, and I'm going to just, we're going to go back there. I'm going to go back to Genesis 15. I want to show you that God had good reasons. Why would God look at Abraham, and he hasn't done anything wrong, and now you're going to send his kids into, intentionally into horrible bondage. They're going to live, I mean, think about that. There were people who lived and died in Egyptian bondage. There was Israelites who lived. That was their whole life. They never knew anything else. And God sent them there, not because something they did. He sent them there. Now, if he could have good reasons for that, you can, you can trust that when there is suffering in your life that he has good reasons for it too. It's not gratuitous. When I say that, you know, God doesn't shield us from suffering and sometimes he plans suffering, he puts us in suffering, I don't mean that he likes it when we suffer, but he has good reasons for it. Always he has good reasons. So let's just look at a couple of the reasons he had for sending Israel into bondage. Genesis 15, verse 13 and 16, Then the Lord said to Abraham, or Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Verse 16, and they will come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. One of the reasons God had to send uh, Abraham's kids and the descendants and the Israelites into Egypt is because the Amorites hadn't sinned enough yet to deserve losing their land. Okay? So, then this is God being fair. I mean, I, I talked about before how God has to love everybody on the earth. He can't just, sometimes we want God to take away all of our suffering, but by him taking away our suffering, he has to hurt somebody else. He can't operate like that. And God says, Abraham, this land is going to be yours someday, but I can't just, the Amorites are the ones living here right now, and I can't just throw them out for no good reason, and they haven't done anything bad enough to deserve it yet. See, he's a good dad to all of us, both the just and the unjust, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. And so he says, I'm not going to give you their land until they've done enough to deserve me kicking them out. I'm going to be fair. And so he, of course, in his foreknowledge and his sovereignty, he knows that give them 400 years, they're going to get bad. They're going to get so bad, he's going to take them out, and then you're going to come back. But in the meantime, Abraham, your descendants are going to have to go somewhere, and they're going to have to stay there for a few 
hundred years. Is God not a good God? He's fair to all of us, thankfully. If you look elsewhere in Scripture, we'll find a second reason why God sent the Israelites into Egypt for 400 years of, and to face affliction and bondage, and it's because God wanted to make his name known to all the peoples and nations of the earth. He wanted people to hear about him who otherwise wouldn't have heard about him. He wanted people to believe in him and be saved who otherwise wouldn't have believed in him and be saved. And so one, part of his plan was, well, the Amorites haven't done enough anyway. I've got to be fair in this because he is a good dad to everybody, not just us. And so he says, I'm going to send your descendants over here. And part of the reason I'm going to send them over there as well is by sending them over there, I know they're going to get oppressed. And, it, and it's a superpower, Egypt. But I'm going to send them over there because that way I'm going to have to rescue them at the end. And in order to rescue them, I'm going to have to do some huge miracles. And by doing those huge miracles, there's a whole bunch of people on the earth that haven't heard about me right now and who are on their way to hell. And they're going to hear about me. And some of them are going to believe in me and follow me. And so is God a good God? Is God a good God sometimes if he lets us suffer pain in order that other people can, temporary pain, in order, that, in, in order that other people can come to know God and be saved from eternal pain? I think so. Now, of course, the Israelites couldn't see all this happening, right? When they're getting whipped by the Egyptians, they're not saying, oh, hallelujah, hallelujah, God's gonna, he's gonna save a bunch of Am Amalekites and Moabites and all kinds of Hivites and Isites and every kind of ite, and he's gonna save them through our suffering. They don't see that. We don't, see it in our, we don't see it in our suffering. We don't praise God and all the people he's reaching. And we think, well, I haven't got a single opportunity to witness yet through my suffering. Oh, but you don't see the overarching plans of God. You don't see the dominoes that get knocked down by you going through this. There's dominoes that get knocked down. You don't see how other people are reached and how other things are put in place for the plans of God. And so the, the Israelites don't see any of it happening. They're just in bondage. They are suffering horribly and they don't realize that God is going to save a bunch of people through their suffering. And so many nations and people actually heard about God and came to believe in God. And we see this in the scriptures. For example, I'm going to show you one passage here. 40 years, 40 years after the Exodus, this is not right after. This is 40 years later. This is almost a lifetime later. There are still people and nations talking about the God of Israel because of the miracles God did in rescuing Israel. I want to show you this. It's the famous story of Joshua and Jericho in Joshua chapter 2 and the famous story of the woman Rahab and Joshua and the Israelites. It's now been 40 years. It's been 40 years since the Israelites came out of Egypt and now they're going to come and they're going to take, uh, they want to take Jericho and when Joshua gets there, he sends spies into Jericho and I want to, you to see what Rahab tells these spies, okay? Before the man lay down, she, that's Rahab, came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Now, how does she know all this about Yahweh? And, and that's the word there, Yahweh. How does she know about Yahweh? Here's how she knows about Yahweh. For we have heard, 40 years ago, it's already been 40 years and they're still talking about it. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, for Yahweh your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. This is a total pagan woman, non-Israelite, praising God, Yahweh, as the one true God of heaven and earth. How did she come to that place to be able to do that? It's because God sent his people to suffer. And because they suffered, he had to rescue them. Because he rescued them, many people came to know about him. And in fact, the plan goes even deeper than that. If you look in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, 
and you read the genealogy of Jesus Christ, you will find the same woman, Rahab, becomes the great, 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 great times, whatever, 40 or 50, grandmother of Jesus Christ himself. And so you see this complicated, all of it tied to a prophecy to Abram, I'm going to send your descendants over to Egypt where they are going to suffer horribly so that I'm going to have to deliver them. And when I deliver them, many are going to hear about me and even I'm going to get one of the grandmothers of Jesus out of it from Jericho, a pagan woman. Nobody can see all of this happening when it happens. But God is using it for good nonetheless. And it wasn't just Rahab and Jericho who heard about God through this. Many nations did. If we look at Exodus 12, 37 to 38, we are told that when the Israelites left Egypt, a whole host of foreigners, people from other nations, left their homes and, and stuff to follow the Israelites because of what God had done. Look at this. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot. So that's the men of Israel, besides women and children. But in addition to the men of Israel, a mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So in addition to Israel, a mixed multitude of foreigners also went up uh, out of Egypt with the Israelites. And uh, all of that because God did those miracles in Egypt. And of course, as, as you know, some of that mixed multitude later caused problems for the Israelites because they didn't leave their gods behind. But nonetheless, some of them will be saved on the day of judgment because Israel suffered and was delivered. So, was it worth it? I mean, you tell me. If you're God and you love billions of people and you want to get them all saved, is it worth it to let some of the kids you love go through suffering in order that others can be saved? And there's more reasons than this. No doubt God in his sovereignty had hundreds of reasons why he would send Abraham's descendants into Egypt. I mean, just one, one more quick one um, is one of the reasons God had to send them away is because they needed a sheltered place where they could grow their population until they could be the size of a nation. I mean, Abraham, you know, he's, by the time he has Isaac, he has one kid, you know, 99 years old, 100 years old, or whatever he is. And then Isaac has two kids, Esau and Jacob, but only Jacob's going to be the father of Israel. So, you know, they, you know, a hundred years after Abraham, there's still only a couple of people in the nation of Israel. There's only a few people. And they need a sheltered place to, to go where they can grow up as a nation and get the population up to be a nation without all the other nations around them picking them off and killing them. So God sends them to the superpower of the world, the strongest nation in the world at that time, where they, of course, they're oppressed there, but they're at least sheltered from being ex exterminated, and it's in Egypt where their population can explode. And so there's many, many reasons why God in his sovereignty would want them to suffer. He doesn't do it gratuitously, but nonetheless, the people of God enter into the promised land through suffering and affliction. He has his good reasons for it, but we must do it. Now, yes, of course, what does all of this have to do with Joseph? Well, everything, right? Because God's got this big overarching plan for the nations. He's got this big overarching plan for the world. He's got this big overarching plan for the Messiah, but here's the thing about nations. When God has a plan for a nation, a nation isn't a thing that can pack its bags and move. A nation isn't a thing that can believe in God or not believe in God. A nation is just the word we give to a grouping of people. So when God says this nation has to go to Egypt and suffer and be afflicted and all this sort of stuff, a nation can't pick up its bags and move over to Egypt. It's people that have to do it. Regular people like you and me, God has these plans for the nations and for the world and for redemption and the Messiah and all these huge things he's doing, just like he's got huge things in the works right now, many, most of which we would have no idea about until someday in heaven and we'll give God glory for all of his plans. But most of them we have no idea about. But then what happens is he's got these plans for the nations, but then somebody has to actually move. 
I'm going to send this nation over to Egypt, but a nation's not going to pack its bags and move over there. Somebody's going to have to go over to Egypt. Somebody's going to have to leave everything they know and leave their family and leave their comfort zone, leave everything, and go over there, and then there's going to have to be real people that suffer over there. So this is where Joseph comes in because he hasn't even made a single choice yet in his life, and it's already written in stone he's going to Egypt. God said, I'm sending the, the nation of Israel is going to go there so that, so that I'm going to get glory, so that they can grow their population, all these different reasons. I'm going to send a nation over there, but somebody's got to go first. And before Joseph has even been born, before he's ever done one thing right or wrong, he's heading to Egypt. And what's so spectacular about this story is we're going to go through it now over the next few weeks is you're going to start to see the form that the sovereign hand of God takes. See, the sovereign hand of God doesn't, it doesn't physically come out of heaven that you see this massive disembodied hand come down and just pluck Joseph up and then put him over here in Egypt. Now the sovereign hand of God works invisibly in events. And in the moment, most of the time, the people in the events wouldn't be able to tell you that it's God's hand that's moving. It's only later you look back and you go, whoa, God was in control the whole time. But one of the spectacular things about the story of Joseph is how you can see, in retrospect, we can look back and we can see how the sovereign hand of God worked through everything. He used bad parenting. He used sibling rivalry. He uses jealousy, bitterness, horrible sins and lies and all kinds of stuff. All of it in a moment. Oh, this is gross. This is horrible. This is painful. Can't stand it. All of it being used for his ultimate good. And none of it, Joseph having any sweet clue what's going on. So that's the context, the Joseph story. So let's go to Genesis 37 now and begin reading it. Don't worry, I only have about two and a half more hours and then we'll be done. Genesis 37, verse 1. Let's begin to finally now read. Now you've got the context. This is, a, this is a kid. He's going to be born into a plan that's out of his hands. And he, you're going to see the sovereign hand of God move this kid and use this kid and do things through him that are absolutely spectacular and all of it because of God and glory to God. But anyway, Jacob, verse 1, lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Verse 3, now Israel, which Jacob had his name changed, and so his, this is just Jacob, but his name is Israel. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So right off the bat here, uh, the story is not starting out great, is it? I mean, God's going to do some great things, but it's not st- on the human side, it's not starting out great. We, have a, we start off here with a dysfunctional family led by a father with a very spotty record of character. I mean, you want to talk about someone with spotty character? Read the life of Jacob. We'll have to do that some summer too. It'll be a sordid summer here at Southland as we talk about the life of Jacob. I mean, he just has, you know, throughout his life, there are big gaps in integrity. There is sexual sin. There's all kinds of deception and all kinds of this sort of stuff. And now he's, the fa- he's a father and he's not a great father. Okay, and so we see him showing favoritism. And of course, jo- Jacob comes by this honestly. He, he grew up in a family with favoritism. His mom loved him, and his dad loved Esau. Okay, so he kind of comes by it honestly. He comes by his dishonesty and bad character honestly, all right? So now he's parenting his kids, and he's showing favoritism. And it causes them to hate Joseph. Now, the amazing thing is, again, I told you before, the sovereign hand of God. God is stirring up this hatred so that he can get Joseph over to Egypt so that he can save all the brothers. That's the sovereign hand of God. He's even going to use the bad stuff for good. 
But I do want to say this to you, parents, before we move on. If you want a sure way to mess up your kids, if you want to get them all to hate each other and resent you and eventually grow up to resent the God you say you worship, I'll tell you how to do it guaranteed. Show a little favoritism. If you want to plant the seeds, the poisonous seeds of anger and resentment and bitterness deep in their hearts, show a little favoritism. There is almost no better way to get your kids to grow up angry and resentful than to do just what Jacob did and create all kinds of hatred and anger in their lives. Now, I know a bunch of you are sitting there right now if you're a parent and you're saying, well, I would never show favoritism. I used to think that too before I had kids. Um, You think before you have kids, you think, well, when you have kids, you just love them all, right? Isn't that true? And of course, if you're a parent here today with more than one kid, you love all your kids. In in theory, you, you do. Yeah, I mean, you'd die for any of them. You'd love them all. But the question is, do you like them all, right? The question isn't about theory. Would you die for them all? Do you like them all? Because I know you had your first one, and, oh, so sweet, right? You have your first kid, and just sugar and pie, and they just are happy to please you. They just want to obey you. That's just what they live to obey you. They love everything you cook. They never complain. They like all your interests. You just had a perfect kid and you thought it was because you were such a great parent. And so you had another one. (laughs) And uh, he turned out to be Satan incarnate. (laughs) You had your first one. You were such a good parent and they did everything you wanted and they were so happy. And your next one is a mule. They're stubborn. They're whiny. They're horrid and Shortly thereafter, you go to the doctor. Let's not even talk about that, but you didn't want to have any more kids. And, and, uh, and, and so here you are now with this kid, and, and, and everything is hard with them, right? And your one kid is easy, and everything's hard. And so, yeah, in theory, they're both your kids, and you love them all. But do you, do you like them? Do you show favoritism? Do you have pet names, you know, for your little girl, but you're not your older boys? Do you have you know, special stuff you do with this kid or that kid, but not for those kids? Do you have time? Do you, do you spend a lot of time with this, this one over here, but not over here? Do you have smiles for one? You know what? Your kids are so sensitive to that stuff. They will see, and by the way, this isn't rare. I see this in families lots. Mom and dad would say, oh yeah, we give them the same amount of gifts at Christmas time. We, we say I love you to them, but they can see right through you. They can see the smile that goes to one and not the other. They can see you have time for one and not the other. They can see they're very sensitive to that sort of thing. And you say, yeah, but Chris, you don't understand. It's really hard. It's easy. This one likes all the things I like. This one doesn't. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. God, you're, you're a parent, and it's your job to listen to God and do the hard work and do your best to connect with all of them. Yes, it's going to be harder with some than others. There's different personalities, different all kinds of things. But it's your job. God gave you those kids for you to show them in action, not theory, his love for them. And he loves them just the way he made them. He doesn't love everything they do. This doesn't mean you can't discipline them. And some you'll have to discipline more than others because they need it more. But if you show favoritism, you are planting the seeds of resentment and and hatred in their lives. But, you know, there's an encouragement in this too. Jacob was not a great parent, and it didn't stop God from using him or Joseph or his brothers either, did it? You know, the encouragement here is that this is a messed up family, but even dysfunction can't stop the sovereignty of God. It can't stop the sovereignty of God. In the end of this story, all, to the, the, all the brothers that hate Joseph are still going to end up becoming the fathers of the tribes of Israel. They're later on going to repent of their, 
of their deeds. Joseph is still going to get used even though he's coming out of dysfunction. Jacob is blessed and talked to and loved by God right through the whole thing. God's sovereignty is bigger than our dysfunction. God's sovereignty, some of you parents here, you've already made mistakes with your kids and you've done things that you regret and you've maybe showed favoritism in the past and there is dysfunction in your family. But the encouragement here is that God, it's, God's bigger than that still. He's bigger than our dysfunction. He's bigger than our mistakes. So let's move on to verse 5. Genesis 37, verse 5. So we start with dysfunction, and the brothers hate Joseph, and of course we know God's going to use their hatred now to be actually the thing that ends up saving them. But verse 5, now Joseph had a dream. And next week we're going to talk about the contents of that dream. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Now, again, like I said, we're going to look at the content of the dream next week and some of the stuff that goes from that, but I just want to finish this message talking a bit about this last verse here. Now, Joseph had a dream. I call this a divine interruption, okay? I call this a divine interruption. Joseph was not, uh, he had no idea anything was coming down the pipe. He, he has no idea. He's not, he doesn't have a premonition in his heart. I think Something big is about to happen. He's not doing listening prayer when God comes and talks to him, as important as it is to listen to God and to hear his voice. Uh, Joseph isn't doing listening prayer. He's not seeking. He's a 17-year-old boy. Life is trucking along. Yes, there's a bit of dysfunction in the family. His brothers hate him, but he's the one who's spoiled. He's the one who's got it good. He's the one dad loves him and is doing all the stuff for him. So life for him is pretty good. He's just trucking along, and out of nowhere, Joseph has a dream. God gets his attention. And God drops this bomb, and you can see God intentionally stirring up trouble. Because what does it say there? Now, Joseph had a dream, and as a direct result of the dream, what's going to happen? His brothers are going to hate him even more. I mean, you can see the sovereign hand of God at work here. Joseph's not looking for anything. He doesn't think anything's coming. He's just happily living his life. He has his 17-year-old dreams of whatever it is he wants to accomplish and become and, and you know, who he wants to marry and all this sort of stuff. He has no idea that his life is about to go like this. He's not doing listening prayer. He's not seeking God about any of that stuff, but it's going to happen anyway. And so there's hatred, and yet you can also see God here stirring up trouble. God is intentionally stirring up trouble in this story. His brothers already hate him, and now God's going to give him a dream that's going to make them hate him more. Have you ever had God do that to you? You are sitting on some kind of powder keg of a situation uh, with one of your kids, or with your spouse, or with someone at work, or a financial situation. You were sitting on a powder keg, and it's just about to blow, and you're trying to hold the whole thing together, and you're begging God for mercy. Please calm everything down. You just want everything to calm down. You want him to put cool water on it. Let's calm this situation down. Let's, let's cool it down. Let's calm it down. Let's make it smooth, God. Let's just hold it together. And instead of calming it down, he throws a match, and it goes... <laughs> I mean, He's sovereign. You can't put him in your little box and make him do what you want him to do. So Joseph's sitting on a powder cake. His brothers hate him, but they don't want to kill him. So God stirs it up a bit more and gives him a dream, and now they're going to kill him. He's going to make it worse. He's not going to make it better at first. He's going to make it worse. He's going to blow the thing up. You're saying, God, I'm barely holding this thing together. Please help it go away. Help it stop. Help it cool down. Help it not to... He blows it up because... Often his plans can only be pieced together in the ashes. And he doesn't answer it the way you think you want him to. You're just crying out to him, and he makes it worse, much, much, much worse. 
He destroys the whole thing before you begin to see his plan rather than your plan come into being. And so we see a divine interruption, divine bomb in Joseph's life. And you know, this makes me think of the way God speaks because we often, we want to just squish God down smaller and smaller, don't we? We want, we want God to just speak to us when we ask him. We only want him to speak to certain questions at certain times. So we only want God to speak when we, you know, it's, and, and God does speak that way, and I love that. I mean, that's one of our core values here at this church. It's one of my core values as a person. We have to hear God's voice. We do listening prayer, and we ask God questions, and we want to hear him. And Daniel, you know, many people in the Bible show us that as well. You know, Daniel, he prays for an answer, and God gives him an answer. And so that, that's one way God speaks, is you ask him questions, and he answers. And I love that. I mean, that's so important to the Christian life. Absolutely vital. You can't have a relationship with God if you don't listen to him like that and have conversations and talk back and forth and ask him things, and he answers. That's one way he speaks. But I think too often we, we put him in this box that the only time he speaks is when we're listening and when we're asking him things and answering our questions. And so often God says, you want to know what the biggest limitation, I mean, listening prayer is so important to your life, but you want to know what the biggest lis- uh, limitation to listening prayer is? We don't know half the time what the right questions are. We don't ask the right questions because we see our life going this way and so we're asking questions about this and this and this and this. How do I do this and can you help me with this? And we don't see he and his sovereignty, he's got a plan from hundreds of years before, thousands of years before, I don't know, that your life is just about to do this and none of these questions actually have any relevance to where you're going. And so the biggest limitation of listening prayer is you can't see the future, you're not God. And so you try to put him in your box, you try to get him to answer your questions. He's like, I want to talk to you about that. And he has to, divine interruptions and divine bombs, he has to break in, he has to blow things up, and then he has to take you where he's taking you. And he does that because God is way bigger than your listening prayer. Listening prayer is absolutely important. Listening prayer is essential. Listening to God, all that sort of stuff, so essential. But God is way bigger bigger than your listening prayer. You can't fit him into that little box. He's going to get your attention. Joseph wasn't planning for this. He didn't have a premonition. He's not doing it. And God gets his attention anyway. Gets his attention anyway. And you know what? I think this is good news. I think this is good news because your life, it's not just Joseph's life that was caught up in the sovereign hand of God. Your life is caught up in the sovereign hand of God every bit as much as Joseph's was. Joseph wasn't the one freak in all of history that God sovereignly had his life going along and the rest of us are totally out of control. You know, Joseph was in the sovereign hands of God, but God's not sovereign over my life. No, 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 no. If God had Joseph clenched that tight, that before his birth even, God had a, had a plan set out in place that he was going to take Joseph through, and Joseph had no idea it was coming, and God put him on the plan anyway. You can bet that your life is every bit as much in the sovereign hand of God as Joseph's. And so I think there's a couple of encouragements I can leave you with on that, first of all. I think one of the frustrations people sometimes have is I mean, you have your devotions every day. I I love to spend time with God in the morning. You're reading your Bible, you journal, you listen to God. I I do that with God pretty much every morning. I love it. But aren't there just times when you're asking God certain things and you're listening and you're saying you're not getting an answer. You go weeks, you go months. He's not a tame God. You don't just ask him stuff and he just gives you an answer right away like that. We don't control him. And sometimes you're going to him and you're asking him things, Lord, and you want, to, you, want to, you want an answer, you want an answer, you want an answer, and the answer's not coming. You know what you sometimes just have to do? Sometimes in my devotions, I just have to say, Lord, you're, you're just bigger than my listening prayer. Sometimes people think they're beating themselves up. I, I'm, I'm not spiritual enough to hear God's voice. I don't know how to do this right. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. You know what? 
God, when God wants to get your attention, he will. Joseph wasn't, even, wasn't, wasn't looking for anything. Bam, God gets a hold of him. Joseph had a dream. When God wants to get your attention, he will. So yes, you keep listening because there are things he won't tell you if you don't have a listening heart. But sometimes you're listening and you're just frustrated and you're asking God all these things and you're asking out of worry, you're asking out of fear and you don't know when God's going to answer you and it's times like that, you need to just take a deep breath and you need to say, God, thank you that you're bigger than my listening prayer. Thank you that my whole life is actually in your hands and you have a plan and I might be listening about totally the wrong things and you've got a T coming right up. You've got a sharp turn coming up in my life. My life is in your hands. Let that settle into your heart. Secondly, this means that you don't have to worry about missing your calling in life. I many times talk to people, especially young people, passionate young people, and, and I want to be used by God. I mean, what's God's plan for my life? What's God's calling? I want to be massively used by God. And, and they're in a hurry. It's like I'm 20 years old. If I miss it, oh, I'm, or I'm 35 years old. If I, if I don't get to it soon, I'm going to miss. And we don't realize, first of all, God's not in a hurry. And second of all, your life is in his hands. Was Joseph trying to find his calling in life? No. Can you miss your calling in life? Joseph had a dream. God just comes, grabs him, and uses a whole bunch of circumstance and pulls him to, to Egypt. Not because it was his, in his career planning. Not because he heard something about it. Not that he even knew it was coming. He had no idea God took him there. You can't miss your calling. You can shirk it. You can reject it. You can disobey it. You can try to run away from it like Jonah. Remember? Jonah got his calling. He's going to try and run away. What happened to him? Shark catches up with him and drags him back to Nineveh. You can run away from your calling. You can shirk it. You can reject it. You can disobey it. But you cannot miss it. God is far too big for that. He's far too big. People say, I don't know if I'm spiritual enough. I don't know if I'm this. I don't know if I'm that. And they're worried that they're missing the voice of God. God is way too big for that, for you to miss it. And so you can trust that your future is in his hands. Joseph had a dream. God got a hold of him and brought him over here. I want to just pray for you based on that. And we're going to sing, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you that we can trust you. My life is absolutely, totally, 100% in your hands. And the lives of every single person here this morning are absolutely, totally, completely, 100% in your hands. Yes, we have choices within that. We can reject we can disobey, we can rebel, we can do all those sorts of things, but ultimately we can't miss the plan that you have for us and you are going to take us there and you will make it known to us, Lord, if we are willing. Lord, I pray that that's, that trust, that trust in your, in your power, in your sovereignty, in your goodness will settle down deep into our hearts so that we can live based on that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.